Hey everyone, this is Odie Spinelli and you're listening to Unstability Podcast. I'm here with my co-hosts, Helena St. Terror and Heather Jackson. Hey everybody, it's Odie here and welcome to Unstability Podcast. Today we are going to be talking about adoption abolition and we have a very special guest that we're really, really honored to have here (laughs) today, Mickey. Hello. Welcome, welcome. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for being um, on here. (laughs) So I specifically asked Mick to be here for this because I... I like most people in uh, the United States and probably a lot of places globally up until not too long ago, like Mm -hmm. had a very skewed perception on adoption and like kind of just bought into the narrative that you're told to kind of believe and never really second guessed Mm -hmm. it. And it was honestly um, mixed uh, content on social media that got me to think about that differently. And I've learned so much from him. And so I just really... Uh, thought it would be great to like have that conversation on this forum and like maybe help some other people understand some brainwashed <laughs> narratives that they yeah. might be buying totally. into and alternatives and way to support <laughs> yeah. families and uh, alternatives to taking children away from their families essentially. So um, well, before we really get started, I kind of wanted to talk. One of the things that I see adoptees, um, you know, when they're talking about adoption experiences mm-hmm. is um, mm-hmm. a lot of the language that's used traditionally, like birth mother mm-hmm. and stuff like that isn't mm-hmm. used. And so like, do you want to like kind of talk about like words and how they matter? Yeah, and, like, absolutely. The different kinds of language um, that is preferred? Yeah, so in, um, in the context of just doing like the education work of kind of rewriting the narratives around adoption, you know, um, people we've kind of started using like first parent um first mother or father but like first parent really is especially since it's more like neutral um and with saying like birth parent it really dehumanizes the first parents you know it make creates this idea that like that that was their purpose was just to mm-hmm. give birth and provide a baby for another family so we take that out of it and like you'll see some adoptees who still use birth birth parent or whatever um mm-hmm. but for the most part yeah we try to use like first parent um first mother first father just because it's more humanizing and it tells the truth because our first parents are more than just the people that birth us you know there's such a a deeper you know um reality there where they were they were our first parents not just birthers or you know whatever so yeah absolutely absolutely and I realized I forgot to kind of ask you like do you that's um yeah I realized I didn't really ask you do you want to like um kind of like tell us a little bit about yourself and your stake kind of in this type of conversation and doing this education work yeah for sure um I would love to. So I am um, a domestic adoptee. So I was adopted, you know, um, in the U.S. And um, I am biracial, black and white, and I was adopted by white parents. And so um, I'm a transracial adoptee. Um, And so in 2015, I reconnected with my biological parents and well, it was like 2014, 2015, my birth mother, and you might hear me say birth mom, birth dad, but that's just like, because that's how I'm yep. understanding my relationship yeah. to them. So it's really, com- it's complex, but yeah, met my uh, biological <clears throat> parents. And then I kind of like had been told one narrative about my adoption and about the circumstances around my adoption my whole life. Like, You know, it was just this like, oh, they loved you so much that they wanted to give you a better life and they gave you away. And so it was just that's how I understood things. But when I reconnected, I kind of learned more of the truth. And there was a lot of coercion, manipulation. Um, My both of my first parents were um, teenagers Mm -hmm. and. So once I learned the truth, I had this experience that adoptees call like coming out of the fog. Um, I personally feel like the fog is it's too binary because it's like 
kind of gives this idea you're either in the fog Mm. or out of it but there's like a really like there's not a binary journey like it's constant there's a constant you know gaining consciousness and understanding your own own story but anyways um I like came out of the fog like three years ago and um, really started understanding how my adoption related to the larger picture of like colonialism and um, white supremacy and um, just all of these, you know, carceral systems that we live in. And then I became an abolitionist. (laughs) I was already an abolitionist, but I became like an adoption abolitionist specifically. Oh yeah, that has to um, go. So you you (laughs) use this term uh, in the fog or out of the fog. this is a new term for me. Yeah. So can you maybe explain to people that are new to this, like what that means? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So um, being in the fog is kind of this experience of being sort of um mm-hmm. I don't want to say brainwashed, but it's like when you're bought into whatever narrative you are told by your adoptive parents, your maybe a church that you grew up in, you know, so it's kind of this thing where you're, there's kind of this big expectation for us to be grateful. And so a lot of the experience of being in the fog is kind of being in this perpetual place of like, you know, living up to the expectations that other people have for you and how you're supposed to feel about your adoption. So a lot of um, coming out of the fog is actually kind of, it's, it's kind of a dangerous thing. And this is why we talk a lot about like suicide prevention in these spaces, because it's very disorienting to learn the truth and understand Mm. that also like you're allowed to feel how you want to feel about things. And somebody has been stopping you from having those feelings. So it's a lot to, to process, but yeah. That's kind of a brief overview of it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, I'm just unpacking a lot of this mentally because I don't know. I think a lot about um, one aspect of adoption I think about a lot is what you're describing as like a like transracial adoption, you know, and I know a lot of people talk about that from a perspective of like potential like cultural erasure and yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I wanted to like, I, yeah, I've thought a lot about this off and on over the years, just like I was a teen parent and there's like a lot of pressure for me to like um, put my kid into adoption when I had her. Um, and I haven't mm. thought about that for a long time. So I'm like, whoa, this is like making me think of that um, kind of intense. Mm. <laughs> I'm glad that you're talking about it. Um, but then as like a therapist too, like working with kids that have been in like adoption or foster care, and like there is like this narrative that they like can't like love their mm. like first parents or whatever like that. And I just... Mm. Like, I can feel, like, my rage right now as we're just, like, having this conversation. So I'm really glad that you're, like, talking about this. It's super important, I think. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's something that, you know, the media really continues to portray, too, right? It's, like, any adoption uh, stories that are ever included into, like, just regular television programming or movies or anything like that, right? We see, like, um, even if you see, like, there be some kind of, like, uh, the the young person like understanding and wanting to find their first parents and stuff like that you typically see this like push and pull between their adoptive parents right mm-hmm. and even though the media is mm-hmm. pretty much generally fl- framing the adoptive parents as good and like trying to show you mm-hmm. like this picture of like well, why did these people give up their kid you know and the term give up their kid yeah. and it's always well you know, giving them a better life or they were unwanted and stuff like that. And it's like, let's look at the real, the real reasonings that are going on there, like under in capitalist America and just in the world that we live in, like global capitalism, it's like you have financial coercion, right? It's like, instead of giving people resources, if they are concerned for financial Mm -hmm. reasons um, about taking care of a child, like 
you know, you have fin- financial coercion, like, oh, well, you can't really mm-hmm. support this kid, so it's best you give them up. You have religious coercion, right? You have access to birth control and abortion being a barrier and like those things, especially um, we talked about this a little bit before in preparation, Mick, but like talking yeah. about like crisis yeah. pregnancy centers, right? Mm-hmm. And how they specifically like try to feed the demand Pretty of like much. babies yeah. for sale. <laughs> it's, um, and that's something like I have been wanting yeah. to <laughs> make sure people understand, like, as I do this work is like, there's two kind of pillars to it. Like there's the state, you know, and foster care and you can adopt, you know, from foster care, but there is a whole private industry that's a multi-billion, not million, billion dollar industry that is not federally regulated. And when people think about adoption, it's like what is baked into that word is this idea that the opposite of adoption is being stuck in foster care. Or the opposite of adoption for a lot of people is, oh, well, would you have rather been aborted? It's kind of like, well, maybe. (laughs) But like, you know, so there's these, (laughs) it's like, I call myself like a walking, (laughs) right, nobody has, like, and why do we have to be more grateful than the average person that we weren't aborted? Like, yeah, Uh, yeah. but um, yeah, just understanding those two different pillars. And I think one that is not, I don't think that the private industry has been um, is understood well enough by the general public because they're they're literally selling babies. Mm-hmm. Yes. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and to talk about that too, and to talk about um, some history, I guess you know, especially in the United States and looking at transracial mm-hmm. adoption and how a lot of it is actually mm-hmm. kidnapping and trafficking, and looking at um, specifically you know, indigenous children and Catholic so-called orphanages, Mm. you know, and we know for a fact that they were selling indigenous children that they kidnapped Mm. from their families, put into orphanages. It's like Mm. they have parents, they had parents, right? But, and then we're selling to white families for $10, you know, and saying, oh, well, we know you're good intentioned if you want to take this child, you know? And so this is the history that the United Mm -hmm. States is built on. And if it wasn't for ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, like that would still be happening. And like, if for people who don't know what ICWA is, it like went into effect in 1978 in the United States. And it essentially makes it so um, when indigenous children are taken from their families that the tribes get to have jurisdiction over the children and who they go to. So they can try to keep them within the family or within Mm -hmm. kin or at least within their tribe. And so that's really important. And isn't ICWA also kind of up on the chopping block right yes. now? Or like has been kind of recently under, you know, threat of being taken. Yeah. yeah. ICWA, mm. is, ICWA is very yeah, like. I think oh, it's important that people. Sorry, the lag. Okay. Go, <laughs> go ahead. It's okay. You know, I, I was, all right. I'll just say this real quick, but I'll let you go. Yeah. I was just going to say that I think it's important that people start to see these things as like another arm of eugenics you know, um, and in like a really um, kind of like a subtle, like more subtle way. Mm-hmm. It's not like over the top, like, you know, we're just going to kill all these kids. It's like, no, like, how do we take them mm-hmm. and like, you know, whitewash them or class wash them and or all of these different things, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like make them into more productive members oh, of society so that we can okay. have more workers um, and all that kind of shit. So, well, you and know, I, to, anyway, to your sorry, point too, with that, <laughs> it's like, I've, you know, a lot of, especially black and indigenous, um, transracial and transnational adoptees, you know, we fully understand it to be cultural genocide at the very least. Um, you know, it's a, it's a forced, forced assimilation. Um, and yeah, it's, something where not only are the typical adopters sort of helping themselves to, um, you know, to other people's children and disrupting kinship networks um, amongst like especially black and indigenous people. um, But also there's this idea of, yeah, like this forced assimilation thing where there's kind of this narrative that our parents are like the worst thing that could ever happen to us having you know black parents indigenous parents it's like they they have to demonize our parents they have to act like 
you know, I kind of pushed this narrative that the worst thing for us would actually be to just remain with our parents and remain in our cultural um, homes and, you know, maintain that kinship. And um, it's kind of something that I think about, too, because of the way that this mirrors so much of, like, um, chattel slavery and um, just the forced birth, you know, and purchasing babies and just the way that it's it all operates it, it has so many mirrors to that right and like with the transatlantic slave trade it's like that's that was the, the first thing that they did was they separated the elders from the children they separated and severed the kinship networks the kinship ties they took you know what i'm saying it was like so important because they understood that a lot of the the ability for for African people to you know um, to have thriving societies and communities and stuff was the relationships between the elders and the children. So they're just maintaining you know kind of that same thing as they're they're just continuing to sever those connections because that's how they that's what they do and that's what they call like um, there's the Adoption and Safe Families Act and the scholars pretty much call that like the federally mandated destruction of the black family because it disproportionately targets black families and what it does is it pays states um, like 20 million dollars annually to um, expedite permanent adoption placements rather than prioritizing reunification wow. with kin or you know um, just any kind of kinship care so the state is also profiting off of yeah so um some of the work that a lot of adoption abolitionists and i are trying to do is it's like a lot is kind of depending on what happens with ICWA, but we would like for there to be mm -hmm. some kind of uh similar thing to ICWA for like black americans yeah. and so we would have to like I repeal feel like that's asfa yeah so i'm wondering too how that could look we're trying to work um, really on but we kind of just have to like really awesome but i look at it like i feel like ICWA exists because in some weird way like the united states recognizes the sovereignty of indigenous nations even if it's just within the confines of reservations and things like that you know what i mean so i'm wondering how from like a legal standpoint we could get black people for example like recognized mm -hmm. as like a sovereign group within the u.s um but that's really fascinating and i'm glad that there are people yeah. doing this kind of work this is extremely important you know um i've often kind of had this idea of um what you were talking about like cultural genocide but uh i just in my own life like i feel I've always noticed these ways in which things are done, mm -hmm. um, particularly amongst black people to kind of separate us from ourselves, you know what I mean? And like, there's yeah. a lot of it falls into things like religion, and then like class, you know, like, um, where I grew up, it was kind of apparent, because we had a lot of, it was like, middle class area, but then there were like some upper middle class people. And then a lot of like lower income people started being going to our schools like because they were being kind of forced out of inner city schools and things like that and just like the difference of just like all these groups of people and stuff and just seeing like I don't know it was just mm -hmm. like it's very bizarre <laughs> and it's very upsetting it's something I think about like often you know yeah, and absolutely. it just always feels like a, a it is literally just a form of genocide just gonna say I can see that even within like I guess the adoptee community and just like amongst like black TRAs and the way mm -hmm. that we are socialized in terms of class like a lot of times we're adopted by wealthier families and so like we have so many things to unpack mm -hmm. when it comes to that because even though mm -hmm. we were stolen we still are kind of socialized in this way where you know even within like our little tiny, <laughs> tiny, small population, you know, we have these kind of class, like huge class differences where like some folks really 
you know, it's like, despite how traumatizing it was, they still like went to college and like, you know, are making like a lot of money now. And you know what I'm saying? And so our, yeah. our kind of our struggles are, our perspectives on it are slightly different depending on, you know, class and also other intersections as well. So, yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine how difficult it must be to try to convince someone of the like, um, or to like bring someone to this, like, like what you said earlier, the coming out of the fog stage, you know, if they can only see like the good and the experience, like if they've been given like college yeah. and like, a you know what I mean? Like yeah. all of these things, like I imagine that must mm-hmm. be really difficult. Yeah. Or even like the threat or coercion that goes along with that, right? Like of an adoptee coming out of the fog and wanting to reconnect with their mm-hmm. first family and like wanting to learn their culture, you know, and all that stuff. And then having their adoptive family yes. use financial means as a means of coercion and control and to yeah, continue to get There's their a, way a in this situation. There's a huge wielding of power. There's, I would say financial, um, yeah. <laughs> financial abuse and coercion is really seems to be a really common thing um, for adoptive parents. And why would it not be? Because the whole entire thing as when it first started was not only just transactional in the sense of like how we understand transactional relationships, but it like literally was a transaction. Like they get receipts and everything. So it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's really unfortunate because people unfortunately have to um, deal with it like into adulthood you know I've been no contact with my adopters um for I want to say like two and a half maybe almost three years now um but that took so much for me to to make that break because they were using financial finances like I knew I had to make a choice to basically be pretty much fucked (laughs) because I would have no more financial support and so but it was like whatever for my mental health I did it but a lot of people they see that choice and it's it's an impossible choice to make so and some people don't even realize that they're being manipulated you know um yeah so yeah it's it's intense and i think it's important too when we're talking about um you know how the state uh perpetuates this genocide you know just when we're talking about even you know instead of the side of adoption of private adoption but talking about foster care and such just like really looking at how often black families are targeted by family police compared to white families being targeted by family police Mm -hmm. when i say family police i mean social workers and child protective workers um you know so just looking at like statistics from 2019 um, 23% of youth in foster care were black, even mm-hmm. though they only made up 14% of the total child population. And so, you know, just looking at that and like how that shows you, like how often these children are being taken away from their families and ha- how that's being played out structurally, right? With the family police or right, the exactly. family social workers. Yeah. It's something like, um, One of the most jarring statistics that I've seen is that 50% of black children in the U.S. will experience a CPS investigation in their lifetime. That's so many. So that means that 50% (laughs) of black children. Right. Yeah, my head is literally spitting as I'm like, what? (laughs) That like hurts to hear. Yeah. It's, It's just like, yeah. Yeah. And so that means that 50% of black children are at risk of losing their families forever at any given point of their life. Like that is, yeah. Yeah. And like, as somebody like, again, mental health counselor and I'm licensed in Rhode Island and New York and in Rhode Island, anyone above the age of 18 is a mandated reporter. So if you like see anything supposedly Mm -hmm. that's like abuse, you have to call in. And if you're caught, not calling it in, you can get in trouble, mm. which I think is so fucked up. And as a therapist mm. too, like there, I've worked with kids in the past and like this push to call fucking CPS and DCYF all the time. Like I, I like, am very clear with my clients. Like I don't do that. <laughs> and I do it in a way that's like, 
not going to get mm-hmm. me in trouble. Well, yeah, like what I was always taught to do is be like, hey, before Just you continue talking, when you feel something <laughs> coming, like, remember, I'm a mandated reporter. And so you can tell me yeah. hypothetical situations. Yeah. And like, also, like, we should just remember also think that. of yeah. why we're calling in the things that we yeah. fucking are told to call in. Like, yeah. maybe it's because people are in fucking poverty mm-hmm. and they need some fucking help. <laughs> like, let's think, let's think about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I hate mandated reporting. Yeah. The majority of children, oh my God, it's awful. And I love that you bring that up too, because so many of, um, you know, those of us in adoptee groups and also just like first parents too, um, us doing things together and working on things like so much of what we're trying to um, kind of, I guess, learn about and figure out how to navigate is like, yeah, that mandated reporting and how we can how families can stay protected and still feel safe to like, you know, go to therapy or um, go to the doctor, even just things like that. Um, so, cause I think it's, yeah. it's like the majority of children are removed for neglect. Um, but neglect is kind yeah. of just this catch all term that really just yeah, means like- poverty most of the time, like 99% of the time. So um, that just points to the structural issue right there. Yeah. And I remember when my daughter turned 18, I was like, oh, my God, I'm not under the threat of the state coming to take her away anymore. Like, how fucked up is that to think, you know, like, yeah, you shouldn't even have to. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So, I mean, and let's talk about for a second, um, you know, I know we all remember, I don't remember the exact quote, I should have put it in my notes, but like recently, probably like a year or two ago, there was like that leak of like the government being like, we need more babies no. or whatever, <laughs> right? Like there's a shortage of adoptable infants. And now suddenly Roe versus Way was overturned, right? And now suddenly they're trying to ban yeah. abortion medications, right? And all this stuff. And it's like, you know... When I was looking online, every statistic I could find was saying that there's 2 million people mm-hmm. waiting to adopt. Um, and so that meant that there was like 36 potential adopters available for every one child mm-hmm. that's available. So for every child that's been taken from their uh, families yeah, or from like, their first parents, what? there's 36 mm. people waiting <laughs> so to upsetting. grab a baby. <laughs> and so, of course, they're going to try to feed this supply and demand, uh, yeah. right? yeah it's it's pretty gross that's why i've been using the term manufactured orphan a lot recently because i am a manufactured orphan it was created Mm. out of you know these um certain circumstances that were highly political and highly religious and you know it i was given away basically as a gift to my adopters they paid money also, like a lawyer made a profit from it. But like, you know, it it was all of this like political and religious mm-hmm. ideology that created an orphan so that I'd be available for this, um, you know, like white cishet infertile couple. And that was my that was my role to fulfill, too. Like I was there yeah. to play this role, like to help them play house, basically. Um and that's what that's exactly what they're talking about in that statement that came out of like the low supply or whatever. Ugh. It's they're trying to find ways to create more available infants. And in particular, I think there's a there's kind of like tears, which is really weird to think about, but like they literally price the babies based on race. And so white Ugh. babies are in the highest demand and lowest supply. Like white infants <laughs> cost like sixty thousand um, dollars. Crazy, and it just kind of like goes fuck? down from there. It's it's horrible. Uh, how is this exactly. not trafficking? It's so sick. How well, is this not about- trafficking? So you start banning abortion, and then you fund all these crisis pregnancy centers, and this some, and then you get sixty thousand. Exactly. How is this not? And trafficking? if you think about it too, like. If, if these parents, if these mothers in crisis, right, or these pregnant people in crisis decided to sell their baby, just straight up sell their infant for $60,000, yeah. that would be trafficking, right? Like everybody would notice 
yeah. that that's trafficking. But because there's a middleman, because there's an official agency and we go to a courthouse and we go to an yeah. office and sign papers, it's, you know, I've even had people tell me like, oh, it's it's oxymoronic to call it trafficking because trafficking is illegal. And it's like, well, surprise, surprise, yeah. the U.S. <laughs> figured out how to do something illegal legally. Right. Right. Shocking. <laughs> Like, I mean, but it wasn't, it wasn't illegal when they were doing it to indigenous children, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, less than right. a century ago. And it wasn't illegal mm-hmm. during the slave trade and it wasn't Ill- yeah. <laughs> like, it wasn't illegal exactly. then, but it was yeah. still trafficking. Yeah. Like it, yes. what, what? If yeah. you're getting your legal system. law, you have a problem yes. and you're lacking exactly. real morals and ethics. Exactly. Cause what is the law to, you know, yeah to the marginalized people of the world. It's just a weapon. It's a tool. Right. The law is just, just a tool of oppression. Absolutely. So I think this is a good point to talk about too. So I think a lot of people might ask then, well, people get defensive when they're learning new things. And so if you're listening to this and you haven't thought about adoption from a critical lens before, and you're feeling yourself get a little stirred up inside and you're thinking, oh yeah, well, what about the kids that are actually in bad situations? Or what about the kids whose parents really don't want them? Well, we have answers for you. So there are... There are alternatives to the solutions to putting money into family police and to putting money into paying foster care and foster parents and religious orphanages. There are alternatives of what could happen with that money and how these children could be cared for. And I thought, you know, we could explore. Mick, if somebody was going to ask you, mm. what are some alternatives yeah. to oh adoption? Gosh. Pretty, you know, what would, what would you say yeah, to that? I there's, know there's some obvious there's, answers. And my first, my first response to that is always just like, you can think of like a million hypothetical situations, right? Like we can talk about hypothetical situations all day long. The first thing that people need to yeah. understand is that these situations where um, children are genuinely not wanted, that is rare. That is a rare occurrence. It's not as common as people yes. think. Um, and especially in light of like lack of abortion access and um, different things like that. It's like once somebody kind of accepts and decides to carry the pregnancy to term, typically they want to keep their baby. Um, that's pretty much like about 95% of the time, I think is what I read. Um like somewhere high up there, like 93 to 95% of the time when somebody cares a baby to term, like they didn't go through all of that just to not have their baby anymore. You know, they form, you form a bond, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's yeah. Yeah. So that's number one. Um, Yeah. Number two would be, we just have to get creative. You know, there's alternatives to, like you said, to all of these kind of, these carceral systems and, um, you know, prioritizing kinship care. And it's like, you should always be going to next of kin. And then if next of kin is not, you know, in the child's best interest, then you go to somebody maybe that's like just very close within the community. Um, And yeah, it's like, we should be just trying to do what's in the best interest of the child. And that is very, very, very rarely going to be, stranger adoption way outside their community of origin outside of their culture no racial mirroring like that's never going to be ideal for a child ever and so um yeah yeah, prioritizing like kinship care and um also just finding ways to support families too like if we can pay foster parents thousands of dollars a month i know it's not a ton of money that they get but like they get enough money to care for the child if we can do that then we should be able to give that to parents that are in crisis it's (laughs) yes Right. See, that's my first thought. Why aren't we just giving that money to the families that are, you know, they're getting their Mm -hmm. kids taken away for neglect or they're being coerced into giving up their babies because they can't afford it. And they're really stressed out because capitalism has Mm -hmm. their, um, it's boot on their neck. You know, why not just be like, Hey, this is money that we have Mm -hmm. to help take care of the kid. How about instead of Mm -hmm. ripping the child away and then also not focusing (laughs) on reunification, Right. How about we give this money to the family yeah. that needs yeah. it to keep yeah. the child with their parents? Exactly. 
Like that seems like and a like really normalizing easy abortion for a lot too. Of like that's yeah. a legit choice. Like yeah, we have to also like create like it's okay yes. to have a fucking abortion. <laughs> like it's okay to do that. And like let's Absolutely. create like normalization yeah. around that because I think that's also part of it too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Normalize it. Fund it. I mean, the majority of people that have abortions already have kids, too. So it's like there's like you don't even have to have a long drawn out valid reason. Like sometimes it's just the best option and that's okay, you know. Um, And so, yeah, just normalizing it and funding it. And yeah, I've had one, too. (laughs) It's it's totally normal. Yeah. And, it's and I didn't, also and probably, I didn't have a bunch of complicated feelings afterwards. It was just the right thing for me. Yeah. And that's a big, that's a big point that I bring up a lot of times with um, just these kind of back and back and forths that I don't go through anymore. Cause I'm trying to protect my peace. But when I would go back and forth with people about the adoption versus abortion argument, I am a firm believer that in most cases, when someone's considering either adoption or abortion, oftentimes abortion is going to be the more compassionate choice for the child or potential child. Yes. Right. Like, because why are you going to bring a baby into the world and then just give them away? Um, So, and I, I get this issue with like kind of the white feminist, uh, ideology a lot where people think that adoptees are trying to take away their choice to be able to give their baby away too and it's just like "Mm, I like I can see how that would be that it would feel that way but you have to think like this child is is going to be a full-ass human being one day and um you know it's like so it's a complicated thing. Like there's so many, there's so yeah. much complexity to it, but um, yeah, I think it's just a matter of supporting people in the very beginning from the very beginning. If they are pregnant and in a crisis, we need to get people access to the proper healthcare yeah, that they absolutely. need and then kind of go from there. So yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, kind of like the mm-hmm. other thing that, I think of too is like let's get rid of the nuclear family and let's create like larger family systems and community care for parenting like I've raised my kid as a very single parent and had like very little help and that would have made things way easier (laughs) if there was help so that Mm -hmm. would also be I think a great alternative Mm -hmm. to adoption something like along those lines I was just kind of thinking about how um like open adoptions are not um, legally binding. And so even just make taking steps towards that, towards making open adoptions legally binding, or even taking it a step further and saying, well, the adoption is not necessary. Like the erasing of the child's identity is not necessary um, because adoption, I don't like, I don't want to get too much into the legal process, but we get a fake birth certificate, you know, and there's a lot of, secrecy and a lot of things information we don't have access to because of this culture of secrecy but it's like legal guardianship would work just fine legal guardianship would provide you know the stability or permanency that a child may need and then you can have it be something where you know there's a legal um, obligation as much as I don't want to uphold the legal system it would be a good place to start to have there be some kind of obligation for the guardians to maintain connection with the first family um, and to keep the child in community with the first family and this kind of opens up that idea of like more collaborative community and breaking down that nuclear family so yeah yeah Absolutely. And, and the thing with that too, um, is, you know, the idea that people have the right to know like their genetic history and like their familial and ancestral Mm -hmm. history. Right. And so it's like, you brought up the term open adoption. It's like open versus closed adoption is pretty much like closed. You don't, you can't look at anything Mm -hmm. from the past. Right. And then open is like, potentially you'd be able to like, look at who, 
the first yeah, paragraph. Yeah, so correct? it kind of has it. It's that, but it has a lot more to do with also just the relationships during the child's life. So I had a weird situation where my adoption was like partially okay. open, but I didn't know about it until I was fourteen. Like I found out when I was fourteen that my adoptive parents had contact okay. with my birth parents, um, but like I wasn't allowed to talk to them. Yeah. So people, some people do that where it's, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so the, it, I know. Yeah. Gotcha. But um, it, it has a lot more to do with kind of like, so an open adoption would basically be the first parents would have like visitation rights and they'd be able to see, you know, their child, they, there'd okay. be an agreement. Um but statistically, open adoptions, um, like I said, they're not legally binding, and they usually are closed. They end up getting closed by the adoptive parents within three to five years. Oh. That's the statistic. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. They be feeling That's threatened. Surprising. Yep. That's mm-hmm. sad and not surprising. Yeah. Well, and this brings me to you know thinking about like you know we know that there's like. Um, you know, cis hetero couples that deal with infertility <laughs> that want babies. But as, you know, a bunch of queer people on a podcast here, let's bring up the obvious elephant yeah. in the room. A lot of gay people, you know, might hear of adoption abolition and feel attacked, right? And entitled to how are we supposed to build our families, mm-hmm. right? And so I think it's really important to talk about like, just because I'm gay, I don't get the right to kidnap and traffic mm-hmm. someone else's child. <laughs> but there, but it, you know, and it's like, if you want, it's okay to want children and it's okay to want to have a family. But as Heather brought up, I think as queer people, you know, it's looking outside of the nuclear model of what a family is, right? Um, a lot of people I know that are gay that wanted children, they had other people in their life contribute genetic material and those people are still in their life and still in the kid's life and everybody knows what's going on and everybody's connected with each other and it kind of breaks down the nuclear model because let's get real about what the nuclear family is is in the first place it's a tool of it's a tool of capitalism to keep us separate right and Mm -hmm. to keep us out of community and to keep us segmented and keep us in control and it's a tool of patriarchy and it's a tool Mm -hmm. of all of these things that oppress us and so obviously that's why they're trying to keep that in place and keep you know adoptees siloed from Mm -hmm. their community and their families but as queer people we should be pushing to do better than that instead of just participating in the the harm that's being perpetuated against children essentially absolutely absolutely and i do think that a big concern that comes up for um a lot of queer folks that i see in these conversations is like um just kind of this idea like that oh you're calling us human traffickers like don't you know that that's already a harmful thing don't you know that like you're you're calling us human traffickers and and that's such a like trope I guess or you know kind of goes in with like the grooming thing or whatever but it's like no it's literally just that's what it is and you you may not be the person making the like making the transaction happen like but you're still a beneficiary of a system that traffics children if you know if that's the route that you decide to go and like I've you know I've got people that follow me and stuff that adopted children you know gay couples queer couples that adopted children and they're kind of just like oh shit like well let me just do my best to support you know to support my child in their journey back home and whatever needs to be done but it's like we just have to really get real about the fact that the the way that this has been positioned as an option for family building um yeah it's just a re like i guess it's just pushing that nuclear family and it's kind of um this thing where we want our families to be approved by the state you know we want to have this like be seen as like as normal as possible but it's like we gotta just keep thinking outside the box of that so Mm -hmm. Yeah, because nobody, nobody should be the yeah. recipient of a trafficked child, period. I don't care what your reason is. Yeah. Yes. I think if you look at, you know, the way that it impacts, like, the queer community and, and stuff, it's, yep. it's 
honestly, it's almost like it, we all fall for the same marketing ploy that all these other people fall for kind of thing. You know exactly. what I mean? Um, and whether it's, whether it's through like private adoption or through thinking you're trying to do something good mm-hmm. by like helping someone through foster and, and all that stuff, you know, cause I mean, honestly, that's where I, I've all, I've long been a person that said that I would adopt one day if I wanted to, because I have reasons to not want to biologically have children, but it's like, well, you know, I learning all this, it's like, I don't want to contribute to this system either. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like, I don't want to essentially participate in slavery right, right. You know, to fulfill my, my need to nurture and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that's fucked up. Um, that's why, you know, I might just stick to getting dogs until I (laughs) figure out what I want to do. Well, and I mean, there's a need, there's a need for foster parents still, you know what I'm saying? It's like fostering is not wrong. I think that that's like, we still need like safe foster parents. And so it's really just about your attitude Mm -hmm. going into fostering, like, and realizing that if you still want to be in this child's life permanently, like you don't have to necessarily adopt them. If you love this child, you should want them to be reunited with their biological family. And then you as the adult, you are responsible for maintaining that relationship. You don't have to like, you know, strip a child from their identity and roots. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I think that that's something really beautiful because we can still, you know, you can still support children. You can still provide a safe space for children to be in and then also prioritize them being, reunited with their kin so yeah absolutely fostering without the need to feel ownership over the child mm-hmm. right and to feel control over the child and the situation it's yes. like shifting of a mindset absolutely yeah. absolutely and i think that goes into yeah. like the larger picture of just the way we see children in this capitalist system like we see children so much as property and so yes. you know it's just really about unpacking that and Um, You know, even looking at states like Texas and Florida, where right now they just changed the definition of child abuse to being like a trans affirming parent. And so thinking about the trans children that are going to be in foster care and it's like, how can now us as a greater community be able to be like, all right, I'm the foster parent, but like, I'm gonna take you to see your parents, (laughs) you know, just kind of being radical in those little ways, I think is just, it's going to be really important going forward. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing. And it's like, you know, to, you know, have the opinion that I have now about adoption. Like I want to make sure like, you know, hell, hell straight up said, like I've considered adoption before. Yeah. I Mm -hmm. used to think that that was something I might do at some point, you Mm -hmm. know, like a lot of us. Me too, even. And I'm adopted. (laughs) Right. So this isn't some moralistic (laughs) stance. Like, you know, if you adopted anyone, you're wrong. Or if you considered it, you're wrong. And like, it's, it's a challenge to, you know, think these things through and think about how we can engage in, you know, helping keep families together and helping support children that may be going through the trauma of being taken from their families Mm -hmm. and thinking about ways that we can build families outside of the nuclear model and outside of what is legal and outside Mm -hmm. of, you know, while letting children be autonomous beings with agency. Absolutely. Having their voice and yep. Yeah. Communities have been doing it forever. Black and indigenous communities have been informally caring for each other and caring for each other's children for literal centuries. Like it is (laughs) possible to do it outside of this legal system. So. Yes. I did want to ask you about your thoughts on like uh, emancipation. (laughs) Um, I was reading into it just a little bit real quick. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are definitely some sus areas in which it can occur, like through like child marriage and stuff, which is just a whole other bag of worms. But I know that sometimes it's like offered in cases of um, just kids trying to get away from abusive situations. And I was just kind of curious what your thoughts were on that, or if you had any information about, you know, how legitimate it is as a option. For like, um, for children getting out of just like from abusive, uh, caretakers, like their biological parents. Yeah. 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 I think, um, I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting thing because it's like, it should be an option. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that children should have that autonomy to be able to be like, I don't want to be your legal child anymore. 
like I want to be, you know what I'm saying? So um, I think in that case, like a community member. (laughs) Yeah. Like I think that, yeah, they, I think that children just deserve, deserve to have a voice and to have autonomy over their lives. Like they are people and they deserve to have a voice and to have a choice. And that is, um, you know, one of the major things that is like so messed up about, you know, adoption and stuff is it's a permanent contract that you're entered into without your consent. And, you know, and so you bring up like minor emancipation. I could have, I could have emancipated myself as a minor, but I would still be legally adopted. Like the adoption agreement would still exist. So. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it worked like that. Yeah. You have to actually like annul the adoption, like or nullify it. And so every state has like different laws around it where um, like, for me to dissolve my first adoption situation, um, I would have to be adopted by uh, another person, basically. I'd have to be, and so I could be adopted by like my biological parents or something. But I talk about how that's just, that's a maddening thing in itself. Like, I don't even want to do that. I, it just sounds horrible. I don't want to be adopted by my biological right. parents. Like, why does it happen? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's horrible. It's <laughs> crazy. So. Yeah, I I worked with one of my clients that happened to and it was just a mm-hmm. nightmare like a mm-hmm. legal nightmare and then just like an emotional draining like fucking horrifying thing yeah, yeah and it's see, interesting that's... too because emancipation isn't legal in all states huh. like oh, Rhode really? Island okay. doesn't have it yeah I've read I was reading that the it varies from yeah. state to state mm-hmm. which also is you know sus yeah that's um, very sus but, yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, and I'm sure the way that states rule on it is going to, you know, make a difference too. I guarantee you if there's like trans adolescents seeking emancipation in Florida or be, Texas yeah, right now. There's so much bias. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 <laughs> like, they're not going to be granted be quicker that. To... Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Well, it's like, are you already in the grant legal... of child oh, marriage than a trans child trying to get emancipated like literally it's sick <laughs> yo oh, literally God. i know that's what's so fun you know yeah it's like all this God. legislature that's supposed to protect children Ugh. and like make all these it's like none of it ever does and historically has not and i think that's what's most upsetting to me about what's going on in like all these states now with right. trans legislature towards children is like we all know that it doesn't ever do the thing it's supposed to do, you know. Like, but it's all just that's where right. you're wrong. It's not supposed <laughs> well, to protect children. Ah, right. Oh, sorry, my bad. My bad. They're not actually trying to protect children. They know. They know that this doesn't hurt children. Yeah. They yeah. are trying to de- delegitimize right. being transgender and transsexual. Like they are trying criminalize to criminalize our existence as humans. When you're right, and you're this right. is a great place for <laughs> them to start. Yeah. and criminalize it yep. and yeah. you know yeah, yeah. so it, it, it it's by design like every other fucked up it's thing doing like what it's the supposed adoption to do. system it's all by design they don't want to <laughs> literally anybody. there's the answer yeah exactly yeah um but yeah Yep. So I guess we could kind of unless there's anything pressing anybody else wants to get to that we haven't I kind of thought we could just kind of wrap up like you know other ways of family building we talked about you know well i guess one one thing we didn't talk about yet is like sperm donors Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh things like that right so i know that's another thing that people are like okay well if i'm not going to adopt uh and i'm gay Mm -hmm. maybe maybe i want to do that and that's something that i thought about in the past and uh I actually think you and I had a conversation about this in your comments once when I was like, I don't know, maybe I'd do that. And you're like, well, <laughs> challenged me. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I wanted to think about that. Like, w- you know, would the person, uh, you know, is it like open where like they'd be able to have mm-hmm. contact with the yeah. sperm donor? And it's like, that's another thing that like a lot, mo- the majority of people that mm-hmm. donate sperm say they don't ever want to be contacted. And even if they say they'd be willing, they can change yeah. that. They can change that contract. And so for, for gay people, I would honestly say like, we should honestly just be looking in our own community to build alternative family systems together. You know, me and my partner don't have any sperm, but there's probably a couple with a lot of sperm out there that also would want a kid 
or wouldn't yeah. want one, but wants to part with some, you know, <laughs> part with some cum. You know, it's not that oh big God. of a deal. Jesus Christ. Send, send over the turkey no, baster. literally. But, you know. When you said that. What am I supposed I mean, it's just going to go no. in a gym sock yeah. otherwise or on someone's face. Like, I don't understand the problem. Not gym, gym sock is sock. crazy. Jeez. Oh, my God. But, yeah, like. Oh, my God. Gym no, sock. yeah. I- that's a that's a really good point though you know about because i there's a disconnection between adoptees and donor conceived people like we're we have these Mm -hmm. connected experiences so we're you know kind of in solidarity with each other because there's it's really that culture of secrecy right and like protecting the first parents rights over the child's rights to know their medical history their genetic history where they come from all these different kinds of things so um yeah it's like absolutely what you said Odie. just having um yeah like just finding somebody in your community that you think would be cool to co-parent with and like really talking about like what are the expectations going to be how like how are we going to make this happen you know um, I think there's so many different ways to get creative about it. So, yeah. I want to speak to this too because I had recently heard some pretty upsetting stuff in the realm of like mm-hmm. sperm donation specifically um, pertaining to. So, there's this doctor um, in like New York where he they keep finding like more and more of his mm-hmm. his donated children basically because there's a lot of states don't actually have laws that prevent yep. doctors from using their own material <laughs> mm-hmm. in artificial insemination so a lot of times what they'll it's do like, <laughs> yeah, literally so a lot of times what they do is just Gosh. replace the samples themselves yeah and i mean this person <laughs> in particular they've it's something like I want to say it's like at least 90 yep. people, but maybe several hundred like that have come forward in the last like 20 years. Like they're still finding people um, and they're all like working together to like change laws and like, <laughs> yeah, you know, push lawsuits against these places and, and these practice like, but it's just like, what the fuck? Like, how have we strayed so far from the light? Like, I don't know. <laughs> <Gosh. laughs> like, like, what is actually, you know, I just don't, but it, yeah it's uh yeah like i remember seeing this on like an episode of like i don't know law and order svu like years ago and was like that can't be real but it is it's like actually like a thing that happens because there's Mm -hmm. no laws preventing it um and so like what you're saying about like looking within community i think it's so important like you know i think um especially for uh, like i just a lot of these systems are not here for our benefit Mm -hmm. and cannot be trusted and i think when you look at things like whether we want to participate in you know the society around us it's like people have their preconceived Mm -hmm. notions about queer and trans people and stuff and like whatever and and um i think it's important that we just like work together (laughs) to be more creative in this arena particularly like there's there's a lot of human resources among amongst us mm-hmm. uh, that we need to tap into more so. Um, yeah. <laughs> human resources. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just talking about it. Yeah. Yep. I'm very glad that we had this talk, though. Uh, particularly when we did. I mean, I'm sure that by the time this is released, things will have manifested and played out in ways that we can very ill imagine right now. But um just mm-hmm. in this moment you know just for posterity you know y'all yeah. it's like the end of april right now shit's already hit the fan pretty tremendously but yeah. mm-hmm. i don't know i am glad that we we got to have this talk when yeah. we did um, i'm really happy too and like from what you said too about like solidarity yeah. as well i i just feel so like tenderly towards this whole situation here being here being able to share my voice as an adopted person um because of the ways that a lot of us feel kind of unsafe or just unseen and unheard in LGBTQ spaces. Like we are, most of us are also queer and trans. Like I would say damn near the majority (laughs) of like our community, from what I've seen, I'm like, damn, we all gay. But um, 
it's in, but like, <laughs> and so, you know, we'll be in these spaces and it's like, you either have to hide your adopted self or you have to make someone really uncomfortable because you have to say like, actually, um, you know, and so you become like this very, you know, very othered person. So it just means a lot to have, to have this space. So I just really appreciate y'all. Yeah. yeah, I'm really, really grateful that you agreed to be here today. Um, and I'm honestly just grateful for everything that I've ever learned from you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the spirit of that, if you're listening to this and you're not an adoptee and you have learned something from this, feel free to share that education with other people you know when they're talking about potentially adopting. Take some of that burden off of adoptees mm-hmm. who, you know, consistently have to put their own personal experiences and vulnerabilities on the line to, like, have these conversations, right? Um, maybe just show them this podcast, you know, Mm -hmm. that's always a good start. Absolutely. (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you for being here with us today, Meg. It's honestly been so wonderful talking with you. Uh, maybe we can find a reason to have you back in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) cool. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. See y'all.